We will be working through it verse by verse as we normally do. My guess is that we'll finish probably in December or so. Today we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we open your word, as we read it, as we as we hear from it this morning, we pray that you would teach us by it, but that you would not only teach us how we ought to live, but you would remind us of your promises to us. We not only forget how we ought to live, but we forget who has saved us, what we have been saved unto, the covenant promises that we have because of what you have done for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of this truth as we open your holy word to us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So in order to introduce this passage, what I want to do is take us to Acts chapter 16. And so turn with me to Acts 16. I'm going to read a little bit and now and I'm going to look at a little bit later as well. Uh, So you may want to just put a mark there or something. Acts 16. And I'm just going to read six or seven verses here in Acts 16. Starting at verse 6. And I'm going to read through verse 12 and then I'll discuss And they went through to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come, over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, Macedonia in concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And so, just when we thought we were done with visions, and when we left Daniel behind, here we are in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul having a vision of a man telling him some things, telling him to go to a place. In this case, of course, Paul is in the beginning stages of his second missionary journey, which it is usually called, and he's with Timothy and Silas, and they would later be joined by Luke on this journey, and this man from Macedonia calls to Paul in a vision, and Paul was on his way there immediately as they discerned that this was the Lord calling them to go there and preach, and the first major city they get to in Macedonia is a city by the name of Philippi, and there they planted a church which would later be one of the churches that supported Paul, both prayerfully and financially through his journeys. And through his times in prison as well. He would even write a letter to this church, Philippians. And this is what we have before us today. 
Philippians is often called a book of joy because that word joy is mentioned so many times throughout the book. But it is also written to a church that was in the midst of some kind of adversity and persecution as well. It was a church that was clearly generous to Paul and to other churches in the area, but it was also a church that realized that while it must help this earthly realm, it was it also realized its heavenly citizenship. It was a church that by all accounts was, was healthy and, and vibrant, but yet what we see is that they tend to be the picture of humility. As we've been in Daniel and we've looked at the results of the people of God being persecuted because of their own sin, this book represents a distinct break from that. As we're looking at a church that seemingly had it all together as far as their behavior, as well as anyone can in this world, they were seemingly doing all the things right. And so this book takes on a tone of encouragement. It's written to them and to us today to strengthen us in our faith and to show the necessity of working together as we see the gospel going forward. And so as we consider these opening 11 verses, I want to break into three main sections. First, the apostles' greeting. Second, the apostles' gratitude. And then lastly, the apostles' prayer. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine, for you all are making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, all with affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just a few things to consider as we look at the historical context, a little bit about the city of Philippi. We're going to be talking about this over the coming weeks. But the the city itself was founded in 356 B.C. by Philip of Macedon, which is of course, Philip, the namesake of Philippi, or Philippi, and Macedon, the namesake of Macedonia. Philip was the father of Alexander the Great. And so this wasn't just some random man, but he was the father of Alexander the Great, who we spent some time talking about in our study of Daniel. A major battle took place in 42 BC there at Philippi, and it was between 
the, of Rome proper, like the, the Roman Empire, and the traitors to the throne, Brutus and Cassius, who you might remember from the Shakespearean play Julius Caesar, because they were the assassins of Julius Caesar. Sorry to spoil the end of that one. After this battle, Philippi became a Roman city, a Roman city and this brought along with it, with it all sorts of wealth and prestige, and it came along with Roman protection as well. And so this city became pretty pretty important. It was a bit of a cultural crossroads as it was located on the main road that connected this budding Roman Empire at the time to the lands of the east, which included the future Byzantine Empire and, of course, Israel and other ancient Near Eastern states as well. Because of this, there was a lot of religious diversity, which included a Jewish gathering. It wasn't quite big enough to be a synagogue at this point, but there was an active Jewish population there in Philippi, and that is what Paul finds when he arrives. He met a few women who would feature prominently in the church of Philippi, as we're going to see as we get deeper into the book. And why are we talking about this? Why do we talk about this city that is now just an archaeological site? Because every time we get to a new book, I think this bears repeating, that this letter is written to a real time, in a real place, to real people. And not just any people, but God's covenant people that existed thousands of years ago now, but were still his people for all time and eternity. And though this is God's word, and absolutely 100% these are God's words to us, It is also written by a man who had real-life struggles in a real-life context. So in order for us to understand today, we must understand when and to whom it was written. So as we go through, we'll dig more and more into that context. But let's look first at the Apostles' greeting, verses 1 and 2 again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, by all accounts, as you look through the New Testament and you read Paul's letters, this is a pretty standard greeting. There's a couple differences that we're going to talk about. Uh, this was a general form of a letter that was going to be written during this time period, and particularly in Greek literature or this Hellenistic period. This is the type of letter that was going to be written. But, of course, Paul's letter to the church, God's word for all time, we do need to note those differences. First, while Paul is the author of this, and it's pretty much undisputed, this is one of the few books in the New Testament where even critical authors will say, yeah, we'll give you this one. Uh, Paul is the author, but notice he lists Timothy as in this same line. He's talking about Timothy. As we saw from Acts 16, Timothy was there with Paul as they went into Philippi, and he was alongside Paul for many of his church planning efforts. There was no doubt that people would have looked upon Timothy with love and affection as they did Paul. Timothy was a great worker for the gospel. He found himself, like Paul many times, a worker in chains. And so Paul mentions Timothy here alongside himself. Another thing is to point out that Paul doesn't address himself as apostle here in other books that we've read you know it says paul an apostle of jesus christ he's kind of announcing not only his name but his his title uh in most new testament letters of course he does that when he's addressing the church because that title carries with it authority 
It carries with it a credibility. So it may seem odd that he chooses not to use it here. And there's a lot of discussion on this as you read through the commentaries and such on this book. It doesn't mean that Paul stopped being an apostle when he talked to the Philippian church. I think that's important. But it just speaks to the overall tone of this letter. The church in Philippi had recently financially supported Paul, and he's writing essentially to thank them. And so you can think of this as kind of like a thank you letter in some ways. As we go on through, there's this picture of strong humility here, and maybe that is what helped him to introduce himself in this way, not not wanting to put his name or his uh, his title there. But I do want to be clear concerning uh, this. Paul had the kind of authority over the Philippian church, and so it wasn't as if he was stepping down from this office of apostle as he wrote to them. The apostles had authority over all the churches in a way that we don't have today because we don't have any more apostles. People can put that in front of their name, but that is not something that we have in the church today that speaks with that kind of authority. That's why we have God's word here for us, because the apostles are still speaking to us today. So rather than apostle, notice that Paul lists himself as a servant, literally a slave Not that this letter is any more or any less to them individually, but I just think it's a neat addition to the letter that you don't see in his other letters. His greeting of grace and peace is distinctly Christian. This is not how uh, others greeted one another in Hellenistic culture. This idea of grace and peace is something that we share in Christ uniquely because only in Christ are these things found. And so that brings us to the next point the apostles gratitude look with me at verses three through five i thank my god in all remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now so paul is thankful as he remembers the philippian church and shows his thankfulness by praying for the church which we will talk about Later, and he mentions that he's praying for them all the time. Notice why he's thankful for them, though. Because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We have a bit of a picture of this in Acts 16. And so look with me again at Acts 16. I'm going to look at verses 13 through 15. Acts 16, 13 through 15. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to, or we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed there was a place, a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was the woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So this is Luke writing this, and so he says they went to to the synagogue or to the to find this house of prayer there on the Sabbath day. Again, not 
a synagogue. I think the Jewish requirement for a synagogue was to have like 10 men or something along those lines. And so we get the idea they didn't quite have that yet, but they did find a group of women who were praying and they went to speak with them. And this, this woman, Lydia, was obviously within earshot, had an appointment with the Lord that day, and there she was, and she heard the gospel and she was saved. And notice how what she says after this time. Her, she's baptized, her household is baptized, and said, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And then it says, she prevailed upon us. She just was desperate to have them come, and that she could be hospitable to them. They were away from home, right? They were far away from home. There was no easy way to get back to where they were from. They were in Europe, in the middle of nowhere, and she was insistent that they come in and spend time with her. From the very first days, the converts of Philippi were welcoming and hospitable to Paul and his fellow workers in the gospel. And now he returns this hospitality with a word of thanks. But notice, and this is important for us today, this isn't just a a mere word of thanks from the apostle. Look at verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Lydia's hospitality, this this sudden burst of hospitality that Lydia had toward these men that she had never met, was the work of the Spirit in her life. And Paul was confident that one day the one who began that work in her and the other people of the Philippian church was going to continue that work and to see it through to completion. I mean, verse 7 goes on to indicate this, right? It indicates that this support was continued as Paul was in prison. They didn't shrink back from their support of a criminal, though he was innocent, obviously. He was a known criminal in many parts, and but did not shrink back their support of him, but they persisted nonetheless. And this is the work of the Lord in their lives. And the apostle was assuring them now that this great work that he had started in them was going to be seen through to completion. This is one of the verses that has always stuck with me as a sign of God's continued mercy in my life and the lives around me. One of the blessings that I've been able to receive in ministry as I've grown older and gained some experience over the years is to watch younger ministers begin their careers. I enjoy watching them during the seminary years as I'm the chair of this committee at Presbytery that does this sort of thing, and I think that the Lord has been has really blessed me with this because I get to to talk to these men and, and walk with them as they're going through this process as they're serving the churches even in their foundational years and finishing up seminary and then watching them go off into full-time or part-time vocational ministry, it's a real blessing to watch them grow for their sake, yes, to watch them grow and and become stronger as, as men of God, but also for my own sake. This verse comes to life as I watch them because I see myself. I see the man that I used to be. I see the mistakes that I've made. And I see the growth that has taken place in my life. And I see the promise come to full life 
of the work that Christ is doing and continuing to do in my life. While Paul is offering them a word of thanks for their work on his behalf and their continued support, he is offering them also a great promise of God. God does not stop when it comes to his child. When it came to Paul, he rose up churches like this one in Philippi to support his ministry and to see him through. When it came to those Philippian Christians like Lydia and others, God didn't stop with a single day of hospitality on behalf of the apostle, but it it became a lifestyle for them, and they supported Paul in all of his works. And not only for that, but for their sake, they they could look at the Lord's continued work in their life as they were continued to serve more and more. For my money, there is no better verse when it comes to me understanding my faith on a personal level than this verse in Philippians 1, verse 6. Because we have the Scripture, right? We have the Scripture. And so when it comes to the proof that Christ is doing the things that He says He's going to do, that that He's come and the truths of God in general and these theological truths that we have, we don't need my experiences or your experiences or anyone else's experience to convince us of the truth. The Word is true outside of my experiences. But... When it comes to my personal faith as a Christian, to to know God and to see Him work, I receive no greater assurance than to see God's continued work in the sanctification of His people. I know people who've gone on to be with Jesus. And I watched them grow. was friends with them when they were young. And watched them grow and watched even as they had to deal with illness or whatever and And their family dealt with it as well. And I saw how God was good to them. And now knowing that that work is finally complete. That the work is finished in their lives because of the promise that we have in Christ. For Paul, there is no greater joy of this truth. It is a great joy as we study, as we as we go through this book, we're going to see this continued joy that God keeps His promise that He finished the work that, we, that He started in us. As we've even been discussing this idea as we've looked in Second Samuel and been studying through that in Sunday school, that our prayers should be for the promises of God, right? That we know that these are promises that He's going to answer. And we see Paul following that example here in verses 9 through 11 as he prays for the church. And that brings us to the last point, the Apostles' Prayer. Look with me again at verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So Paul shares with him his gratitude and offers them assurance, but then he prays for them, and his prayer again is toward their sanctification. He wants them to continue in this love that they've had for one another, this love that they've had for their neighbor as they've loved their neighbor as themselves, as the Lord Jesus has commanded us to do. But his prayer, notice that it's not just for love, but that their love would increase with knowledge and discernment. That, verse 10, that they would be able to approve what is excellent. When I read this, I thought of First Corinthians Chapter 13, if you want to turn there, I think, which gives us, of course, 
You're probably familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, giving us a definition of what love is. Love is this, love is that, right? But it also helps us to understand what it isn't. As Paul qualifies that love in the midst of this, his discussion on spiritual gifts. And so look with me at 1 Corinthians 13. I want to read these first three verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So in chapter 12, Paul speaks about the spiritual gifts that we have in Christ, how Paul, is, or has, as the Lord, has gifted each one of us with particular spiritual gifts to serve Him and to serve His church. And so what Paul is telling us here in 1 Corinthians 13 is that we can have these gifts, we can have all this this gift, but if we use it without love, it is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, and it's just making noise for no good reason, that it's possible to be doing things that are seemingly right, but to be doing them for all the wrong reasons. So if we consider this in the context of Paul's prayer for the Philippians, he's praying that they would love more and more, which is good, right? But that this would just not be an empty exercise, that they wouldn't be doing this because they feel like they should. But where they're not just kind of what we call like going through the motions, that it would just have the appearance of love but wasn't actually that thing. But rather their expressions of love would be a thoughtful exercise that with knowledge and discernment so that they may be able to approve what is excellent. I mean, biblical love is different in this way. It isn't empty or shallow. Biblical love is rooted in God's truth. The love that we are called to in Christ is a love that passes all understanding because it is a love that we have been shown in Christ. This is the love that we have, and we are to show that to others. In many ways, the Philippian church has shown this as they stuck with Paul in his most difficult times. So it's easy to even let something as serious as like supporting a a missionary, which they did, just to be a mundane kind of going through the motions that we kind of do, as opposed to a thought-out expression of true Christian love. And our love is to show discernment, which I I appreciate that word there because a lot of times what you hear in common culture today is that love is blind, right? And it's oftentimes even said as kind of a a compliment to that. Well, love is blind, and you know, and that and that's just not true. It's not remotely true. It's not even true in the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world doesn't believe that sentiment, and neither should the believer. How much more, as people of God, is as the children of God in Christ, should we insert our godly discernment into our expression of love for our neighbor and for one another? And notice here the second part of verse 10. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I want to make sure we understand what's being said here. When Paul prays that the believers will be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, he isn't praying that the believers would have 
come to the point when they have earned their salvation. That he, they have finally become clean. That's not what's, what's going on here. Rather, it was to do, has to do with their sanctification, which we, have, we already read that he has begun that work, and he who has begun that work in us is going to see it through to completion. So this is something that is going to happen in the life of a believer because of the work of Christ in their lives. He is praying the promises of God for the people of that church. This is a prayer that we should pray for ourselves. This is a prayer that we should pray for one another. That we would be presented as pure and blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. That he would continue the work that he has started in us and that we would see it through to completion. And he even kind of qualifies that a little further in verse 11 as he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God, that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but one that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This reminds me of the work that he, or the, the letter to the Ephesian church, that we are created in good works, that we would walk in them, that we're not saved by them, we're saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast, but in Christ we have been created by We have been created in good works that we should walk in them. This fruit of righteousness comes from Christ to the glory of God. I think it's important for us to point that out for the life of a believer, but also I think it's important for the unbeliever to see and know this as well, that the fruit of righteousness only comes through the righteousness of Christ, not through your own righteousness This is important here because while all good deeds on earth may help people, they may show how much you love others, they may show that you love your family and your spouse and your co-workers. I know some unbelievers who run circles around me in these departments. The way that they love others, the way that they care about other people in their lives is just incredible to see that. But it's not earning them favor before a holy God. You can be the most kind person, but without the righteousness of Christ, your kindness is filthy rags compared to your debt of sin. The only way that you can please God is by faith in Christ alone. There is no other way to the Father except through Jesus, except through His righteousness. If you're trusting in your own righteousness, you're trusting in something that cannot save. Instead, call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. But for the church, we are presented with a picture of a church that loved the Apostle Paul and that they wanted to see him thrive in his ministry, yet they are not called to stop there, but to continue to grow in love for one another more and more with knowledge and discernment, and that these works that God will use to show that he is continuing to work in their lives. So church, let us show how our, how we love one another and how we love the lost world around us more and more to the praise of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we as we come to you in prayer as we consider these words the apostles prayed for the church then and 
even as you pray on our behalf, even now interceding at the right hand of the Father, that we would, that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Lord, I pray that you would help us because it is so easy to turn inward and not to love. To not care about those around us, but rather to care about ourselves, our own preferences, our own desires. It is so easy to drop this command from you and rather care for ourselves as our first priority. So Lord, we pray that you would teach us more to love others, that this would not be an empty exercise, but that it would be one with knowledge and discernment so that we would be able to approve what is excellent and not that we would be glorified, but that you alone would be glorified in all the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.